You're listening to Career Up Now's Socially Distanced Close-Ups Israel Edition, where college students and young professionals interview the leaders who are shaping the face of Israel today. Let's jump in on the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for the Social Distance Close-Up Israeli Edition interview. First, could you please share with me a brief story of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I'll try to make it brief. It took a few steps, but I was actually born and raised in Venezuela to a Jewish family, second-generation Holocaust survivors. Venezuela, last century, was actually known by being a country that that it was very open to immigration. Actually, a significant Jewish community Mm. was grew there. Most of them people fleeing World War II and Holocaust survivors. My grandparents arrived there because it was one of the few places that they could actually get in. And I was born and raised there. And But ever since I remember, I was very connected to Israel and the idea of living in Israel and you know, living in a place that, after all, is the project all of us, of the Jewish people. The first moment I could move, I moved. And that was just after college. I went to college in Venezuela to study computer systems, information systems engineering. It wasn't, to be honest, a very thoughtful process on how, why did I choose a system engineering? Looking backwards, I thought it was just something like computers. It was something that I could, I saw myself like being interested in, but it wasn't like, I wasn't thinking about what I'm going to do for the next 50 years. It was kind of, but but, you know, the end of the story is is a good one. But I was there for college, but I always wanted to move to Israel. And so I did just after finished college, I packed my bags and said, I'm making Aliyah. I think my part of the reason I waited, my family told me, get a college degree and then do whatever you want, but just don't go without a college degree. And I think that was actually good advice because it helped me in the process of integrating into Israel. I went to Israel to be an Israeli. That was my goal, to live there and to integrate in society as much as I could. I became an immigrant myself after my grandparents were immigrants and spent a lot of hours learning Hebrew and making a new social network of friends. And I was very involved in some activities there, like political parties or certain organizations. So I, I really felt that I fit in. But then, you know, life goes around and I, one of the things I did, I served in the army, I worked a little bit in the public sector, a little bit in the private sector, and then I actually decided to continue studying. And at the time, I knew this professor of economics, who's, a, who's uh, somebody I knew and, and had enough. He's a professor in economics here in the U.S. and uh, where I am now. And he, at some point, told me, go to grad school and study economics. I really wanted to study politics. I was, like, obsessed with politics, with Israeli politics. I am still on until today. Mm-hmm. But I took his advice because I said, you spent so many years studying engineering. I've eaten all this math. I should use it. I enrolled in, in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which was like my dream university. I loved it. I mean, it became my alma mater. I loved it. I love it all, up until today. And I enrolled to a master's in economics. And I fell in love with economics. I enjoyed the way economists think, the way economists see the world, the methods that economists have in answering questions. I love the questions that they were asking. So being there, there was a lot of encouragement of the faculty that people who wanted to continue to pursue like a more advanced degree in economics, uh, namely a PhD or, or any doctoral studies, it was encouraged to go to the U.S. and do it. After all, the U.S. has like 
amazing universities and their faculties at the front line of research. In Israel too, by the way. I mean, I think Israeli yeah. universities have nothing envy from American universities, but it was part of, I mean, I think part of like everything in life, you want to just go out and explore new worlds and, and maybe a bigger world. And after being in Israel for about five years or so, I, I was fortunate enough to being accepted in a program here in the U.S. in economics, and a doctoral program, a PhD. And then I enrolled in a PhD in public policy at, at Harvard. And I spent there a few years working on my dissertation, which, you know, that was my second immigration experience. I moved again to mm-hmm. a different country. And I'm saying all this because, funny enough, part of my dissertation and, and a big part of my research today is about immigration, the economics of immigration and how immigrants actually represent a huge potential and economic gains for the countries that they arrive to and the countries that they live from also that that there's this dual of the benefits so that's a big part of what keeps me busy today nowadays just to wrap up my long story i I am at brookings which is a think tank in washington dc where i mix rigorous academic research that i was trained to do in my phd but also bring in into the equation more policy relevant questions and how we can translate some of that research into policy and um, that's what i do in my day to day so it's been a little bit of a long road and, and two countries and different experiences but that's where i am today that's really interesting i also like that your dissertation involved immigration research based on your story i think that's really cool that you incorporated that the next question is can you name a teaching moment for you whether that was a mistake you made or some failure that made you reassess what you were doing? Wow, there are many failures. I think that this career that I am in, the, the career of an academic, is really full of failures that, that people outside don't see it. So I want to kind of take all of them as one lesson and failure rejections, right? So because part of what you're doing as an academic, in a few words, is to find this question that nobody else has answered before that is pushing the frontier of knowledge. I mean, imagine like everything mm-hmm. we know, like everything all we humans know, it's a big circle. And you end up doing as a researcher is to push a little bit the line, the outline of the circle to make the circle bigger, right? So you have a bunch of people around the world pushing their own little corner of that circle. And that's how that circle grows and grows. To push that little uh, corner of the circle or that little piece of it, it's, it's hard. I mean, it involves convincing many others that you've done it, that you found something that nobody knew about before, that you do it, that you've done it in a way that is rigorous, that you've done it in a way that is robust. And that involves like putting the metaphor aside, that actually involves applying to conferences and applying to sending your works to journals and magazines to be accepted or rejected. And, you know, in the vast majority of cases, you get rejected all the time. It's rejection after rejection after rejection. And then you have to realize that at first it's hard, right? Because uh, imagine when you just come out of your PhD, you've been working on something for five years or more, and you are the person that knows the most about this topic probably in the world or one of the few. And then you send it out to, you know, you're ready to put it out to the world. And then a bunch of people tell you, no, you didn't do it right, right? So it's pretty frustrating. And at first, you really take that too hard. And you, it's easy to get frustrated. And it's easy to even be depressed. And, you know, I'm working so hard on something. And people just tell me how wrong I am. And at the end, you understand that part of what this career involves is that you have a network of people who are trying to help you make your product better and your research better and more that takes into account more and more things. And of course, there are ways to say it 
feedback in a nicer way, which is always very well, it's always very welcome. I mean, we should always try to get feedback in the nicest way and always also say the good things that you've done, like in your research. It's not only about concentrating on the things that you could improve. But at the end, in the big scheme of things, you start to learn that you're surrounded by a network of other people who are really, really smart, who have great ideas. And the more diverse that group is, the more diverse those ideas are and that ultimately will make your product better. So the more rejections you get, it helps you improve what you're doing. And at the end, you know that you are going to get these rejections all the time from conferences or from journals or from any other activity. And at the end, you know that you're going to make it, but you have to go through this process of failing, quote unquote, just to grow and make it better. I appreciate how optimistic that is. (laughs) (laughs) What is one core value that guides your life? You know, I think that more and more I've been really, especially with everything that is happening in the U.S. around me, and but also everywhere in the world. I mean, I think that diversity is such an important value that we should embrace more and more. I mean, I live in the world of ideas. Again, my work is, yeah, in the world of ideas, of trying to bring ideas to academia or to policy. And it's impossible that just one group of people have the best ideas. That's just not the way it works. So I think it's so important to embrace diversity and to bring so many different people to the table with different backgrounds, with different birthplaces, with different diversity in in every single possible dimension is so important to nurture your work and to nurture your life beyond the work, right? I enjoy so much to learn about so many different cultures and it just enriches us to be more diverse. So that's a value that I, that I think I've been taking on for my work and also for my personal life to try to incorporate as much diversity as possible in every aspect. That's great. I definitely think you're right that it's, that it's so beneficial professionally as well as personally and socially. And right. It makes things so much funner, funner too. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you enjoy life much more. It gives people so much color. Definitely. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think that one of the things that I've heard a lot from many of my PhD advisors and something that I embrace a lot is that you have to be passionate about what you do. It's not, I know that that's an advice that is not, sounds like it's not always applicable because there are people who are perhaps less fortunate and they don't have the option to choose what they can do. That's something we have to continue working I'm saying maybe with my public policy hat to to expand the set of opportunities for everybody because that's the whole point of making the economy better and and so on to really help everybody to have a much bigger set of opportunities, which I know and we know that's not the case today. But I think that having said that, which is a very important caveat, I think that an important advice for everybody who's trying to find their place in the world is to really be passionate about what you want to do. I mean, you should do things because you believe in them, because it moves something within you. Because you're going to, whatever you choose to do, I'll look at it again from, the, from, the, from my own perspective on, like for people maybe out there who are thinking of doing a PhD. Now you're going to spend a lot of time thinking and writing and cleaning data and doing interviews and whatever you do about the one topic that you choose. So you better really feel passionate about that topic because otherwise it's going to be very hard. And I think that the, that goes beyond in life. I mean, I think that it's more important to have more projects than memories. You want to have many things ahead of you that you feel passionate about. You, Of course, you should understand that that passion should not offset somebody else's passion, right? I mean, it's whatever you're doing, it's something you believe in, but you should be also open to understand why maybe what you're doing 
could be improved so that it will help other people who think differently than you or at least engage with those people. But and I know it, it sounds very cheesy to say just be passionate about it, but I do really think that you have to keep working until you find that what you're doing, what you're waking up in the morning for is something that you like doing and that you can see yourself doing it for a while and then that it will lead you to something else that you're doing. But right now, enjoy the present. I like that a lot. I think you're right what you're saying at the end that it could change too in the future. But as long as like each day, each moment, you're focusing on what you're passionate about, like you'll be guided in the right direction. We have one more question that is more of an Israel-focused question. Right. And it is, if a college student or young professional were moving to Israel, what would be your advice to them? Well, first of all, you are my hero if you're moving to Israel. I very much would like to go back to Israel at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later. I feel that sort of little place and that sort of little project for Jews around the world. At the same time, concerned about Israel. I mean, I think that there's many things happening that are not the way, you know, it was envisioned when we started. Where I don't want to get too political, but there are many things that we need good people to go and help us fix them. Because we yet ultimately want Israel to continue to be a democratic country, a strong democratic country, protecting all of its minorities, because that's part of being democracy is not only to have elections, but to protect your minorities and allow them to thrive and succeed. And also to continue to be the homeland of the Jewish people. And if we don't keep the balance between those two, I'm very worried about that Israel will become something we never meant it to become. So in that sense, you know, without that's a big enough message, but I think for people who are willing to move to and be part of fighting the good fight to continue Israel to, again, be a, a democratic, before anything else, country, and also to be this place that is our home as Jews, but also, of course, the home of all the minorities. That's welcome, and I think that's a great endeavor. And I think my advice is, like, go there, do your life, and get involved in the country, get involved in this project that we started 100, 150 years ago. The idea of Jews, we can have our own state. The country is 70 plus years old, 72 this year. And it looks maybe for a human being being 72, it's already starting to get a little bit old. Not Maybe not nowadays, but for a country, it's a really, really young age. And there's a lot to fix. There's a lot to do. And we really need good people with democratic values and, and with progressive values, I would say, to come and help in the construction of this little country that is such a big part of who we are as a people nowadays. And we should continue to make it a light onto the nations, which is what it's supposed to be. And this is what we as a people are supposed to be, according to our writings. We're supposed to be a light onto the nations yeah. and Israel has to be that too. And we have to work hard really hard to make it happen. I like that. Well, that concludes the interview. Thank you so much for sharing your story and wisdom with Career Up Now. I really enjoyed your optimistic and open-minded perspective on public policy. And you'll have great <laughs> policies created from the Great. Thank you, Rachel, for the opportunity. Thank you, and I wish you the best in the future.